welcome to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a flair of Ukrainian travel, and I am your host, Larissa. So I realized after the last episode that I didn't include an update on the language law that was that I was talking about from um, 2012. It was repealed literally like the next day after Yanukovych fled Ukraine in 2014. However, a new debate about language has begun again in Ukraine. The new president, Zelensky, uh, has brought the topic up again, and there is debate about placing Russian as a state language. Europe wants a more, quote, balanced uh, language law, to which I say, look at yourself. If I, an English speaker, can go to a country like Poland and find that everyone, and I mean everyone, can speak Polish or French, then you have the right to talk about a balanced language law, because the majority of countries in the EU have one state language. Unsurprisingly, this resistance is led by Hungary, a country whose president is a complete dumbass with clear fascist pro-Russian stances. Hungary is also one of those EU countries that have time and time again tried to undermine the Ukrainian state in that region bordering Hungary, and are also the most vocal in blocking Ukraine's NATO membership intention. And to Hungary, and Poland, and Slovakia, and all the other countries with large Ukrainian minorities, I have a question. Is Ukrainian a state language in your country? No, then shut up and actually work on presenting yourselves as European countries with European values. The Ukrainian language laws are no different than those of Hungary or Poland. Minorities are allowed their own languages, but the official state and school language is Hungarian or Polish. Also, stop illegally logging the Carpathian Mountains in Ukraine, fuckards. But back to this episode which will be all about how Ukrainian traditions have survived throughout the centuries and a look of how paganism has been incorporated within like every Christian celebration. So it's sort of appropriate that this is coming out October 1st, don't you think? Uh, And apart from earlier, I don't think I'll be swearing much in this episode, but we do talk about sex, so there's that. But first, let's talk about some travel options for you. has a river running through it. It's called the Dnipro. It is 2,200 kilometers long, the fourth largest river in Europe and one of its major rivers. I don't know what that means, but I think it's important. It rises or springs uh, near Smolensk in Russia and runs through Belarus and Ukraine until it joins the Black Sea. It has been used as a trade route for millennia. Even the ancient Greeks knew about it and called it the Bo- uh, sorry, Boristenis, while the Latin name was the Dnepris. It was the main river of the Amber Road, which was an ancient trade route for amber, which was brought down from North and Baltic seas and even from Ukrainian areas to Italy, Greece, Syria, and Egypt. Amber from this trade route was found in Tutankhamun's uh, tomb from the 14th century BC. It was found in Mycenae, in the Temple of Apollo in Delphi, and even a royal tomb in Katna, uh, Syria. 
Idnipro brought in the Vikings, who used it as a connection between the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea, and therefore the Byzantium Empire. And as we recalled from the first episode, they also founded the Cave and Luce Empire along the way. Its rapids were used by the Zaporizhian siege as a safeguard for their fortress on Horvitsa Island, which is now located within the city of Zaporizhia. The Zaporizhian siege were Cossacks of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. But those particular rapids were submerged in 1932 when the Soviets dammed up the Dnipro to create Dnipro hydroelectric station. The Dnipro was also important to the Cossacks because they used it as a means of effective transport for their armies and supplies and all that stuff. Uh, the Dnipro also basically separates Ukraine in two. One side is literally called the left bank Ukraine, and the other is the right bank Ukraine. But the Dnipro also runs right through Kiev and separates basically like the old historic Kiev from the new. It also has a lot of um, splattered islands in between the two sides and a lot of yachts and boats that traverse the river in the summer. It's also one of the most polluted rivers in Europe. So when I remember that I swam in it, it leaves a sickly feeling in all honesty. Anyways, uh, this was probably in like 2015 in the summer and my friend Lada uh, suggested a group of us rent a yacht. Now, I have never been on a yacht, so this intrigued me. Lada looked it up and did all the planning for our yacht day. Uh, we would meet at this yacht club, bring food for the day, board the boat, get a nice tour, take a swim, and even barbecue on an island. Plus, it was cheap, since the conversion to Canadian funds was like 20 to 1. So I think we paid $100 for me and my husband, and there were like six of us. Um, it was actually a really nice time. I don't know what company we used, but I'm almost fairly certain that Lada simply Googled yacht rentals in Kiev and booked the yacht that way. So if you are in Kiev and want an inexpensive way to have a nice relaxing day on the river, look it up. It is well worth it. So we packed ourselves and our food up and, and headed out onto the yacht. We spent most of the day sitting in the sunlight rather than underneath. Um, I don't know what it's called, but we didn't spend that much time down there. Uh, our captain and his mate chose a very nice route along the river and then found a small island for us to, to dock on. Uh, they brought out a small barbecue and we had whatever food that we brought with us and we grilled it. Um, and they even allowed my husband to use their fishing um, rod stick thing to catch some, catch some fresh fish. I mean, they were small, but apparently good. I didn't actually eat them. On the way back, however... Our captain decided to take us on a tour of Konchazaspa, a neighborhood in southern Kiev and a former state preserve. Now, it is the vacation home of the rich and wealthy of Ukraine for their dachas or cottages. Everyone who is anyone in Ukraine owns mansion along the river. All the presidents, all the premiers, all the big pop stars, like everyone. Most probably don't actually own it in their own name, but everyone knows who owns what. And these aren't like little cottages along the river that you would think of when you would think of like our weekend getaway cottages up in Canada. They are mansions situated on like acres of land and water. 
there are grottos, there are lake houses, there are like dedicated saunas, special docks, like dock houses or whatever it is that you call when your boats need a special place to sleep or whatever. If you think of it, these dachas have it. It is like the extreme example of gross capitalist spending. Anyway, Lada, the one who organized this, also told me about her experience celebrating Ivana Kopala in Ukraine. I never got to experience it in Ukraine, but this annual holiday is celebrated by Ukrainians across the globe and will be the feature of this week's episode. Anyway, she basically described like the ideal pagan celebration. A lake surrounded by willow trees, hundreds of people isolated from the urban sprawl, and celebrating an ancient holiday. So let's leap into this week's topic, paganism, and how it still influences Ukrainians today. Judeo-Christian Islam religions spread throughout the world, we were all pagans in one form or another. But some of those pagan influences still exist today. Christmas, for example, is celebrated on December 25th because that is when the Romans celebrated winter solstice. Their celebration of Saturnalia evolved into Christmas gift-giving, and the Christmas tree was originally a pagan form of tree worship specifically to the god Thor for winter solstice. In fact, most of our modern Christian traditions are basically a form of propaganda from Queen Victoria's court and from Charles Dickens's work, A Christmas Carol. Santa Claus today is Coca-Cola's bastardization of Sinterklaas. Uh, a podcast, Our Fake History, has a pretty interesting episode about the history of the evolution of St. Nicholas. And if you want to know more, I'll include the link on wanderingtheedge.net uh, and on the Facebook page. The name for Easter is literally taken from a Germanic goddess, Esther, because her feast month was in April. So Christianity has been pulling and pushing for their expansion among people by taking in old pagan traditions, making it more comfortable for pagans to worship one god instead of many, while incorporating their pagan beliefs. In some areas, this was more the stick rather than the carrot, though. But in Ukraine, it was a bit more carrot than stick. Uh, Ukrainian paganism wasn't as structured as those of the Roman and Greek varieties, mainly because the different tribes had their own systems of worship. The oldest form of paganism was animalism, with good and evil spirits, which included domestic spirits who lived in the house. Some were evil, like Mara, a female demon that causes strife, gossip, and sickness, while others were sort of cute. The Domovic, the house spirit, would take the shape of a little old man or a mouse who hid in the shadows behind the oven and he kept the home cozy and would even help out with the housework. Like he was like the ideal man in a way. So then came the worship of fertility gods and ancestral spirits. And then a more structured pantheon of gods. There is scattered information about what particular gods were worshipped in Ukraine rather than the greater Slav world. 
but Mikola uh, Mushinka does a great job contextualizing it in his article, which translates to Ukrainian Zeus and Jupiter in Ukrainski Journal from 2007. It's a Polish-Ukrainian journal that I didn't even know existed until I started looking into this topic. So here's his explanation of the main Ukrainian gods, and the information about them all is primarily from his article, but I quote, The main gods of the ancient Ukrainians were Sparo, god of sky and fire, Perun, god of thunder and lightning, and Dashbo, god of the sun and prosperity. We read about them in the Rus Chronicle under the year 980. And so Prince Volodymyr was alone in Kiev, and he set up idols upon the hill. Outside the courtyard, wooden Perun, but his head was silver and must then the mustache gold, and Hors and Dashbo and Streboch and Simarla and Mokosh. And people brought them sacrifices, called them gods, and brought their sons and sacrificed them to these demons and defiled the land with their needs. And the Rus in the land in that hill was defiled by, by their sacrifices. End quote. Clearly, this was written by Christians. Uh, now, before we go on, I wanted to talk about how pagans thought we came to be. I have tried to figure out what the Slav pagan uh, creation myth was, and holy shit, was it difficult. It's like all over the place. There's no concrete creation myth as there is with the Norse or some North American indigenous myths. Like, I love the Iroquois myth about the Great Spirit placing Earth on a giant turtle's. Um, I think because there are various tribes that had different world views, there's no clear singular world creation myth. Like I found a creation myth about a world tree, uh, which I think is has like a the North Norse influence, uh, a myth about the about God and the devil sitting on a boat in the ocean, and the devil devil giving God some sand, and he creates land which was clearly Christianized and was probably the sun god and the god of death sitting in a boat. And like there's a myth involving an egg being cracked and the world spilling out. Um, there's also a myth about a spider web, but spider webs are considered good luck in Ukrainian culture. So that's probably where that came from or, or vice versa. I don't know. Again, creation myths in Slav pagan folklore is just very, very varied. Um, but back to the gods. Now, Perun is the most well-known god. He holds an axe and is associated with the oak tree, which, uh, under which human sacrifices were sometimes made, even as late as the 16th century when the Cossacks sacrificed uh, roosters, chickens, bread, and meat to Perun on the island of Kortitsya. Perun is our Thor. There are still rocks and oaks named after him throughout Ukraine, and there's even a village of Perun in Lemkivshina, the Ukrainian part of the Polish Carpathia. To this day, one of the worst curses you can throw at a Ukrainian is Podaitya Perun Zabiv or Podaitya Perun Striliv, basically meaning let Perun kill you or let Perun strike you. And we don't need a Marvel movie to know his influence, just saying. So, Dashboch is the god of the sun and life. He is our version of the Greek god Helios, 
who drove a horse-drawn sun chariot through the sky. With Dajbo's blessing, he would bestow goodness and prosperity, and some folklorists even believe that the traditional Ukrainian Christmas carol, Oidai Boje, actually originated from his cult, Oidaj Boje, like Dajboj. Veles, or Volos, is the god of cattle and wealth, because if you had a lot of cattle, you were rich. And long after accepting Christianity, Ukrainian farmers would leave stalks of uncut grain during their harvest, tying them together for Velos's beard. Sviatovit was the god of fertility and prosperity. While Mokosh, also known as Pyatnitsya, which is Ukrainian for Friday, was the goddess of fruit and water, patroness, patroness of women's work and virgins, and her feast time was in the autumn, when the land began to die. Next is Lada, not my friend, but rather the goddess of spring, weddings and marriage. Her feast holiday was actually incorporated into the church festival during Holy Trinity Day, or the Feast of Holy Pentecost, or as we Ukrainians call it, the Zelenisiata, or the Green Holidays. And it is still tradition to decorate your home with freshly cut tree branches, so your house would be filled with newly born green leaves. In the table book that I found in Ukraine called Ukrainian Culture by Natalka Leshenko and Ruslan Pogluk, there's some interesting information about traditions that I am I'm, I'm summarizing regarding this festival here. Um, so in Polisia, the northwestern part of, of Ukraine, the greenery is left for an entire week, then placed under the sheaves to keep away mice, or hung in the barns to protect cattle, or put in the fields to protect yields. In eastern Ukraine, an aspen tree branch can be used to identify witches. It makes no earthly sense how, but apparently, the branches must be chopped and set on fire, and then some milk poured into the frying pan to fry, and then the first woman who comes to ask for something is the witch, and she must be shooed away and given nothing, and then your curse is cured and your cattle is saved. Cows are important. The church, in their attempt to draw in the pagans, began to actually bless the branches and hold memorial liturgies for those who died at that time and thus incorporating a very pagan tradition within a Christian world. Now, originally, Lada's holiday used to be a three-day, like, pure party affair. The old and the very young were not allowed to attend. The church sort of called this time the devil's games because it included fornication, where young men would kidnap young women. Now, this is actually still a popular wedding day game that is played by Ukrainians. But since many of these pagan traditions are still not only popular, but actively played out, this proves that we, as a people, don't listen very well. Before we go on to talk about the god Kupalo, let me just go on a side note. Even though Ukraine was baptized, although it was more of a king wanted a wife and the emperor of Byzantium said no pagans allowed and so he became a Christian and therefore his empire became Christian, the common people continued to worship various gods, but also the Christian god, 
Adrian Ivakiev, in his article, The Revival of Ukrainian Native Faith from 2005, explained that Ukraine had, quote, thorough synthes synthesis of pagan and Christian elements, end quote. And this is often called a double belief. So while you go to church every Sunday, you say your prayers at night, you also say a little prayer to Dashbok for a good harvest, or still, or still leave an empty dish out during Christmas Eve dinner for your ancestral spirits who are said to sit by the table alongside you and enjoy your company. For the church, it was easy to establish a physical presence throughout Ukraine because pagans didn't worship in buildings. They did so out in the open, at altars, like under that oak tree on the Hortitsya Island. Now, Christian priests believed that these were gathering places of witches and sorcerers because the pagans didn't have priests as we would think of them, but rather Volfid, who sacrificed on behalf of the people. There was also the Vidmas, which is actually what translates to witch. But these witches were considered to be beautiful young widows, rather than like the Macbeth witches with their warts and boils and all. Now, a born witch was the seventh daughter of the seventh daughters. So yeah, you can figure that out on your own. And she was considered a skilled healer. Ukrainian witches would even attend church because while the upper classes did begin to be influenced by the church and associate witches with Satan, the lower classes didn't really think it weird to visit a witch to get some healing herbs or some life advice. The church, unsurprisingly, greatly opposed this pagan worship and even influenced the nobility to condemn it. Voldemort the Great, for example, destroyed all pagan shrines, or at least he tried to, but neither the priests nor the nobility ever managed to erase it as completely as, say, the Romans destroyed the Druids, or the Christians destroyed the pagan cults of Western and Southern Europe. Ukraine is more like Scandinavia, as it incorporated a lot of the pagan traditions within its Christian faith. The Swedish word for thunder, for example, is Thordod, meaning Thor's, Thor's rumble, while the Norwegian word for lightning is Thorsvarme. Sorry, Norwegians, I can't speak Norwegian, uh, which means Thor's warmth. Some in Scandinavia still ask for Thor's blessing for their harvest, while others believe that if your field of grain is struck by lightning, it means that it will be fertile, since lightning is, to be is believed to be the union of Thor and his wife Sif. The Get it? Like, in Ukrainian, the North Frisians even have a curse involving Thor. Let red-haired thunder see to that. So, but back to Ukraine, though. So the church simply tried to replace popular cults. Perun was replaced with St. Elijah, Velas was St. George, and Kupalo with John the Baptist. In those traditions they couldn't suppress, they just incorporated. Caroling during Christmas, blessing of wells and water and fruit, or even fortune-telling. Uh, we do this during St. Andrew's Eve, by the way. Now, one of the most pagan celebrations is centered around the god Kupalo. He is sort of the god of love and water, and his feast days took place during the summer solstice when the sun bathes in water. Plants, especially ferns, acquired special, special magical powers during this time and would be able to protect you from evil spirits and heal people. 
Young people would gather and play games. Many of these would devolve into orgies as pagans and Ukrainians in general until like the 18th, 19th centuries didn't really care about a bride's virginity until Russian views on virginity began to be widespread. Also, women can thank Queen Victoria for that one too. Uh, the Kupala Festival was even written about in the Hypatian Codex under the year 1262 when the chroniclers noted that, quote, Lithuania suddenly attacked Yazbov, I don't know who that is, on the eve of St. John's Day and Kupala himself, end quote. The history of this cultural festival began to be examined academically in the 19th century, a time that intellectual Ukrainians began to explore their own history. Oleksandr Potebnya was one of these. He was a Russian noble and Ukrainian linguist, philosopher, and pan-Slavist, who was also a professor of linguistics at the Imperial University of Kharkiv. He documented the differences of celebrating Kupalo throughout the Slav world in his article on the Kupalo fires and related ideas, which was originally published in 1866 and republished in Ukrainian by the Institute of Cultural Anthropology in 2008. And I quote, Near Bozhega in Siberia, uh, oh, sorry, in Serbia, whoever jumps highest through the fire will have the best harvest of wheat and everything else, and their flax will be higher. The Belarusians on the eve of Ivan, after sunset, drive a peg into the ground, cover it with straw and hemp and on the very top place some balls of straw, which is called a dome. They then light it on fire and run around it, throwing birch branches in. And in the checks, they jump as high as possible through the fire in order to grow some hemp. In different places along this side of the Dnipro, they follow this custom. Before Ivan, girls having cut down a black maple branch, spike it in the ground at whim. They then make a stuffed scarecrow, a doll, full of straw, dress it in a feminine way with a skirt, corset, etc., hang their crosses and necklaces on it, and plant it under a tree. This doll, as far as I know, in the Kharkiv province is called Amarena, from the word Maranam, meaning death. In the Kharkiv province, before evening, the girls set a table under the black maple, cook eggs and pancakes, the boys bring vodka, eat and drink. Then the girls take everything with them along with the marina and carry her to drown her together with the black maple. This is done before evening and the fires are lit after sunset." End quote. Now, the identity of Kupalo is a bit of a mixed up, like some believe he was identified with Kostrub, the pagan god of winter, while Marina was the goddess of spring. The romantic version of this tradition is that the two lovers tried to meet every year in order for spring to begin, and so the harvest be healthier for the harvest to begin and the earth start to die, something like that. So here's a basic synopsis of what went on for this festival. Again, it, it changes according to the region, and this is the sort of gist of it. So on Kupalo Eve, uh, the earth reveals its secrets and ferns bloom in the night to mark where the earth's treasures are buried. Ferns, ferns can't bloom flowers, thus the magic of the evening. Uh, the trees speak and move and witches gather and the young find their mates. 
there's a description in that table book, Ukrainian culture, which can best sort of describe why the Kupalo tradition was seen as a heightened spiritual festival as the natural forces of the world were more active than they normally would be. Here's an account from the Cherkasia region, region from 1925 about how these two siblings experienced the legendary hunt for the fern flower. And I quote, We came to the woods, to the place where earlier that day we noticed some fern. So nice, so quiet there, as quiet as a desert, and not a breath of wind. Only it was frightening for some reason. So we laid the blessed tablecloth under the fern, wrapped it, used the blessed knife to draw a line around, prayed to God and said, let God rise two times and hid in the bushes. And we stared at the fern. The candle was flickering. And out of the blue, there came a strong gust of wind. It was tearing and rattling and bending the nearby tree over us. Something was howling, a wolf or, a, or the wind. And there were owls. Who knows where so many of them came from so suddenly? Swooshing above us in a cloud like jackdaws in autumn. I was shivering, so scared. I was afraid to glance back at my brother, tears streaming down my cheeks. And then, very close nearby, a solid stone fell, almost hitting us. Then a second stone came, and a third. And then came the thunder, and the lightning bolts followed, striking right before us. I lost it, and I looked up and almost fainted. Saw something so terrifying in the sky, as if some birds with huge heads, fiery eyes, adder tails, and the flames of fire emanating from their tails. I glanced sideways and I saw the forest on fire. Shut my eyes and grabbed my brother, and we ran for our lives. When we glanced back, we saw and heard nothing behind us, not a breath of wind. Only somewhere on the other side of the forest did an owl squeak. And so, was this just a sudden summer thunderstorm, or Kupalo stopping by and saying hello to a worshipper? During this evening of celebrations, uh, unmarried men and women would gather outside the village by a forest or stream. They built fires, the pagans would probably make sacrifices during this time, and they would sing and dance around those fires, usually erotically. Lesya Ukrainka, famous Ukrainian 19th century poetess, even wrote an entire book about Kupala songs and traditions. In the introduction of Kupala Navoleni, she wrote about some of those songs. Quote, only girls sing, and sometimes the boy res boys respond to them. They start with short songs like, Oi Molodaya Molodetya, Oh Young Lady. The boys, meanwhile, take Kozu, the local version of the Kupala effigy thrusting large stakes in the, in the fire that can burn higher. While the fire burns, the girls sing songs, sometimes tugging at the boys during the, those songs. Then the boys respond, sometimes with songs, but more often with jokes. Sometimes they're not very polite and gentle, end quote. Uh, wink, wink. Get it? Uh, so both sexes leapt over the fires, bathed in the water, and played very sexual games at that night. The fires couldn't be extinguished, but have to die out on their own. The females weave flower wreaths and then try to divine their fates based on what those wreaths do when they set them floating into the water. 
an effigy of Kupala was created, usually by the boys, and burned, drowned, buried, or torn apart to symbolize the impending decline of the Earth's fertility, while Marena, created by the girls, would also be either burned or drowned. The two forever chasing each other but never meeting, which is sort of sad when you really think about it. Now, all of this was designed to get people to marry and have babies. Like, in some areas, the boys would also make crosses or circles of twigs and let them loose in the water, and if they touched the girl's wreath, that meant they were destined for each other. Or simply, if a wreath floated in the direction of a guy, that was it. That's your, that's your future husband. If you jumped to that fire holding hands, it meant you would stay together and get married soon. I don't think it was like a binding contract or anything, but it was a way to encourage sexy time. Plus, babies equals assurances of a future for the family and the village. That's why orgies or sex at least with one partner wasn't so uncommon, and it was even expected. You let your crazy out, and well, one thing leads to another when you're on your own in the middle of a forest. Also, Ukrainians really like celebrating name days. It's like another birthday for us. I don't know how it started, but I'm guessing it has to do with figuring out what to name your kid based on what saint's day, what saint's day they were born on. And since Gopal's holiday was supplemented with St. John the Baptist, Ivan's name day is July 7th, which is also when you celebrate Gopal's day. So if your name is a version of Ivan or Ivanka, Ukrainian version of John or Joanne, and it's July 7th, and happy name day. Have a shot of vodka on us. And so centuries and centuries of the church trying to get rid of the Kupala festival sort of fell on deaf ears. And while the most fervently religious types were probably brutal in their crackdown of the festival and all pagan influences, I think the majority just allowed it to happen as long as people still believed in the one indivisible God, or is it the Pledge of Allegiance? Anyways, you believe in the church's God. You can celebrate Kupala all you want. This coerced acceptance was felt by all the empires that held sway over Ukraine until the Soviets came around. everything else in Ukrainian society. Uh, the Soviets tried to Sovietize the Kupalo celebration. They did this because the magical and religious elements were thought of as backward thinking. But what's more backward thinking though? Having an excuse to get some or a genocide of an entire people because they don't like you. Just saying they're Stalin. Anyway, the Soviet approved Kupalo festival sounded super boring. And guess what? Didn't gain any popularity. The Soviets emphasized aesthetics and the playfulness of Kupalo. So all the work and none of the fun. Maria Lesiev briefly described the Soviet version of the Kupalo celebrations in her work, The Return of Ancestral Gods, uh, Modern Ukrainian Paganism as an Alternative Vision for the Nation. As a quote, in the Soviet context, the Kupala bonfire came to represent goodness and the eternal glory of Soviet heroes. Instead of Kupalo and Marina, 
effigies of the enemies of Soviet ideologies, such as warmongers, bureaucrats, drunkards, and hooligans were burned in the bonfire, end quote. The Soviets designated the last Sunday in June as the Day of Soviet Youth, instead of July 7th as a way to differentiate their state-approved holiday from that pagan one. It was never popular because it was fucking weird, and it also made no goddamn sense, like a lot of Soviet things. The pagan festival was, however, popularized outside of Soviet Ukraine. The Ukrainian diaspora still celebrated annually. A large celebration was organized by the Association of Ukrainians of Poland in Premish, a city on the Ukrainian border that has a long and complicated history of Ukrainian-Polish relations. They celebrate on the banks of the San River, while the Peremish fortress overlooks the frolicking Ukrainians. In the USA, Ivana Kupala celebrations are held throughout the country. The one I definitely know of is the Kupala celebrations at Sum Ellenville Campground in New York State. Uh, in Canada, the biggest Kupala festival is held at the UNF camp uh, campsite in Hawkstone. And those are the only the ones that I know about. I'm sure that Ukrainians in Australia, in England, and S elsewhere celebrate too, and they're just the bigger ones. Like organizations organize and celebrate on a on a smaller scale. Like I remembered celebrating every year when we were sent to Ukrainian summer camp. Our counselors would dress up as Rusalki or water nymphs, forest spirits, and recreate the drama of Ivana Kupala. We would make wreaths, which was sort of hard since the camp had only like leaves instead of actual flowers. Uh, but the boys would make their own wooden crosses or circles or whatever. And when when you're a kid, you you love this because there's just something so magical about a bonfire being lit around sunset. When we got older, though, we were allowed to play the game of uh, to find the fern rose. So you got woken up at night and you try to find this impossible flower in the middle of the forest. While it sounds nuts, it was usually easy to find. Unlike the one year they put me in charge of the camp, when I was super older, of course, and we created a scavenger hunt game, and those kids just could not find this damned flower. We created the flower of paper, the flower was the flower was not real. And so at around like one in the goddamn morning, we finally just told them where this thing was, since they couldn't guess the only diamond at camp was the baseball diamond. So even though this festival sounds weird to some, it is a celebration that millions of Ukrainians have cherished and will continue to celebrate generations later. And that's it for this episode. Uh, I hope you all had a great journey through the strange paganist festivals that we Ukrainians still follow even today. Let me know what weird pagan festival is alive and well in your culture on my the Facebook page. I would love to hear some of the weird stuff that goes on in other cultures. Also, Remember to follow Wandering the Edge on Instagram um, at Wander Edge Ukraine or the website at wanderingtheedge.net. And if you would like to help out and donate so I can get access to more academic sites, rather than constantly asking my friends for articles, please do so on the uh, Want to Help page on the website through the donate feature using PayPal. And if you would like, I will also include your comments on the feedback se section on the homepage. Keep wandering, my friends, and we'll see you next time.